This is episode number 344 with Sarah Leary of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, Nathan Chan here. Welcome back to another Founder Podcast episode. Hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, please do leave us a review and please do share this with a friend or a family member or anyone that you think will get a ton of value. We interview some of the greatest entrepreneurs of our generation. We don't charge for these interviews and we really do try to get you some of the craziest, most unique, well-versed, experienced founders in the world. So yeah, if you could share this, it would help us more than you can imagine. And make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. All right, so let's talk about today's episode. We're speaking to Sarah O'Leary, who's the co-founder of a company called Nextdoor. And this is the largest social networking service for neighborhoods. Now, she used to work at Microsoft and was in the founding team to launch Microsoft Office, and uh, she started a company called Nextdoor. Really fascinating story around how that came about and how she found this idea, which I go really, really deep with her on. Then we also talk about how she now works at a, a venture fund called Unusual Ventures, and she's really passionate about helping other people, and I really delve deep because she speaks to a lot of founders and a lot of founders in the ideation stage. So if you have an idea for a business or maybe it's a new product, this is an absolute idea masterclass like you wouldn't believe on how to validate it, how to unpack it, how to stress test it. This is an amazing interview. I really, really enjoyed my time with Sarah. She was very, very giving and uh, very generous with her time, her knowledge, and experiences. All right, guys, that's it from me. Now I jump to the show. So the first question um, that I ask everyone that comes on is, uh, how did you get your job? <laughs> that's a great question to ask people. Um, 
You know, I, I think that the journey to finding out what it is that you want to do in life, uh, it always tends to go back to your roots. And for me, that started with my family. Um, and I grew up in a family where entrepreneurship and small business owners were everywhere and uh, maybe somewhat unusual, but it was normal to me. That was my grandmother who actually started a business with her two brothers, immigrant family. You know, you can't go work for Big Blue or some big company. You got to go make your own way in the world. And uh, and so I just grew up thinking that that's what everyone did. And, and that's what everyone's grandmother did. And so uh, when you grow up with that in the background, you uh, you think about like that's where you want to end up. And so even though I started my career at Microsoft uh, and it was an awesome time to be there early, mid 90s and had a chance to work on the first launch of Microsoft Office. Even then, I kind of knew, well, wait a minute, this is, you know, Bill and Steve's company, Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer's company. And I kind of want to try my hand at doing that. And obviously, I, I shouldn't have been running the company. I was I was 20-something years old. But it got me hooked on the idea that here was a company that they had started from the ground up, at least with Bill and, and Paul Allen. And and so I knew pretty early on in my career, I just wanted to go early stage. And uh, and so after going to university, after going to business school, I pretty quickly found myself in the early stage startup game in Silicon Valley in the late 90s. And um, I loved it. Like I loved being in a place where you had, you could build the team, you could build the culture, build the product and have a lot of control and impact on what you were doing. And Fortunately, that first company, we were able to take it public and then eBay acquired the company and I had joined as employee number 15. And so you would have thought I, I had scratched the itch of being in a small company, but I felt like, well, wait a minute, I wasn't there at the very beginning, right? That's that's what I missed out on. And so I joined uh, the my co-founder who had started the first company I had joined uh, my co-founder, Nir of Tolia, and we started to think about new ideas and starting a company from the ground up. And that was a crazy ride. And we can talk more about it if you want. But basically, we started one company. It didn't work out. We had to pivot to another direction. And we eventually um, landed on the idea of trying to build a social platform for your local community, for your neighborhood. And that was Nextdoor. And we started that about 10 years ago and built it from one neighborhood in the United States to now being uh, available across the entire U.S., almost every neighborhood here, 10 other countries, including Australia, Canada, the U.K., France, Italy, Spain, kind of you name it. And so um, I was just really drawn to being in that early stage company. And, and as I left next door about a year ago, I wanted to take those experiences and then apply them to helping other entrepreneurs and founders on that journey. And that's what drew me into venture capital and to joining Unusual Ventures. And so uh, it's kind of, you know, a, a journey for everyone. And for me, it was one that just had this truth about wanting to be in early stage companies and be a part of building something from the ground up and then helping other people do the same. Yeah, wow. You've had an incredible journey. Um, a lot... A lot I'd like to unpack. I'm sure a lot you'd love to talk about. Um, we can go in many directions, but um, I'd love to talk about kind of the early days. You said because you know I, I was really excited to speak to you because you know Nextdoor, well known, um, you know, well known company, massive success, right? You know, 
Um, so I'd, I'd love to just kind of understand the early days because it's easy to, you know, to look outside and see, wow, all this success. And um, yeah, like you said that early days you worked on a product. I, you want to you hear how the sausage got made. Yep. Yep. And, <laughs> but you talked about the early product that didn't work out. Like, like, yeah. So tell me about like that. So that was kind of the first kind of, yeah. Yeah. So, so my co-founder Nirav and I were entrepreneurs in residence at a venture capital firm, which is a, a fancy way of just saying you get kind of put in a room and told, come up with ideas and, and see what you come up with. And, and hopefully it turns into something big. And, and we went on a journey of starting a company that was still an online community. It was actually around sports fans. And we launched this company. It was called Fanbase. We actually worked on it in uh, stealth for about a year, year and a half before we launched it big mistake. And then when we launched it, it actually had a great reception, seemed like it was doing well. And then after a few months, we just realized that we weren't on to the next big thing. You know, we weren't building the next ESPN, the next big online sports community, whatever you, you would call it. And that was a really hard situation to be in because we had spent all this time, we had raised money, uh, but we just we could just tell from the engagement and the retention and the usage that we really hadn't figured out something big and something that people loved. And that was a really hard decision as as co-founders. We actually went back to our original investor and offered to give the money back. He said, no, I, I bet on the team. Um, he was also like, that's a little bit of the easy way out. Why don't you why don't you try at it again? And so. We hunkered down, we shrunk the team uh, down to a core group of people and started working on new ideas and took a radically different approach in developing those ideas. It was much more of what now has come to be known as lean startup, where you work on ideas, you talk to users beforehand, you build a prototype, you test it in as quickly as possible, and you try and figure out if you have product market fit before you fully commit to building out the entire company. Uh, and frankly, that's that was a big learning. It was a hard learning. It, we spent two and a half years doing it the other way. And uh, I now feel very, very strongly about how you go about finding that, that new idea. And for us, that idea became next door. Um, and part of it was inspired by our own experiences in our neighborhoods where we could talk to people all over the globe on Facebook. We could connect with people in our business spheres with LinkedIn. And yet we didn't know the people who lived right next door or right down the street from us. And that seemed to be a missed opportunity. And certainly wasn't the way that I grew up. And so that became the nugget of an idea. We went out and we tested it in a couple of neighborhoods. It turned out we weren't the only ones who felt that way. And then we were off to the races and building next door. But that was 10 years ago. Yeah, wow, crazy. So a um, few questions there around that first company, Fanbase. Um, so you said you were building like a sports community in stealth and you said that was a big mistake because, yeah, that's an interesting concept where, you know, you, you see like somebody's working on a company on LinkedIn and it's in stealth. They don't, you know, it's it, that's just the title. Like they've, they've updated, they're in stealth, whatever they're working on. Why do you think that was a big mistake for this particular instance? Well, building something where you're not getting feedback along the way is very dangerous. Um, I mean, you better be right. <laughs> 
And and I always think about it. It's like you're trying to hit this target that's really far out in the distance. And if you're off by even a little bit in the beginning, you're going to miss the target. And instead, it would be much wiser to go out and take, here's our idea for a community for sports fans and go talk to people who might be your target users and find out, do they agree with your hypothesis about why there needs to be something new in the world? And if you can't get people excited and, and, and lighting up as you're talking about it, it's going to be hard to convince them to adopt a new app or a new website or a new community. And, and so the, the big mistake that we did was like, we didn't want anyone to know. And I think a lot of founders think about that as like, I don't want anyone to steal my idea. And, and the reality is it, the idea is part of it, but it's also about the execution. And so I'm not saying you need to go out and go do a big launch that you're working on something new, but go talk to your potential users or customers and validate whether or not your assumptions about what's missing in the market is true. You know, as entrepreneurs, I think we're we're optimistic, we're willful. Like we see something that we think is missing in the world. And that optimism is essential to get something off the ground and to give it meaning and and to recruit people. But you gotta be careful uh, not to, to be in your own echo chamber and listening to yourself. Get some third party validation, ideally with your users and your potential customers before you start investing in building out the, the whole product. You know, to me, it's a little bit like if you were building a house, you, you usually draw up some blueprints. Yeah, right? that's a great analogy. <laughs> and you show it to some other people who might be an expert in something and you find out whether or not you're missing something before, before you start digging and pouring the foundation. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And the uh, look, Lean Startup, yeah, Game Changer, Steve Blank, Eric Reese. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, next level. We've yeah spoken to both those guys. Yeah, featured yeah, both Steve, those guys. Steve yeah. Blank. A lot of his writing influenced us, and these were all things that we we knew. It's not like this was our first time building products or companies, but I think even experienced entrepreneurs, you can get overconfident. Uh, you can you can actually get to a point where you're even more fearful of telling the world what you're working on because it's not fully formed yet. And you, you're going to be subject to some more scrutiny because you've done it before. And so I just encourage people to, to share it with the, with the audience that can be most helpful to you about understanding, are you meeting a need that they actually have, right? So you have to validate, is the need that you see in the market true? And then there's a question of, does your solution, usually a product or a service, actually meet that need. Those are two separate steps that I think sometimes people rush through because they want to start building something. And we just had a rule where you couldn't start building anything until we had answered those first two questions. Was there really a problem? Was there something missing? What were the alternatives? And was your solution potentially better? And so that's what you took to when you started building next door. Really, really important learnings that came out of that failure. That, that was a very expensive way to learn the lesson. Uh, and so hopefully we can share it with other founders so they don't have to waste two years of their lives 
working on something that <laughs> leads to nowhere. Mm, yeah, look, it's a very common thing um, because it's scary to do product development. It's scary to speak to customers. Um, and it's it's quite exciting and, yeah, there's something special about this idea of starting your own thing or building this grandiose business and then you want to hold on to that idea and, like, it's fun. It's really fun to come up and map it out in your head but then it's not oftentimes not something that people actually want or yeah it doesn't solve a need or problem or it, pain or there's no solid business model scary. around it yeah it's scary to show to show your product or your baby to someone and be like do you love it as much as i do and and this is what i encourage people is like show it earlier because you're going to get clues that are going to increase the probability that when you actually launch it to a larger audience you've built something that people care about and that they are delighted with. And, and that's the name of the game. That's the name of the game. Yeah. Agreed. So curious, um, you said you wanted to give the money back uh, after 2.5 years. A couple of questions there. One is, are you able to share how much money it was? And, you know, for 2.5 years, like that, that's a decent runway in of itself. Like how much did you raise and like how much did you want to give back? Were you self-funding? Like how, how did that? Yeah. Sure. Uh, well, I think in part because uh, my co-founder had started a previous company. I had been a part of that company and that company had had a successful outcome. We were able to raise money pretty easily. And so at the time that we were willing to give the money back, we had somewhere in the neighborhood of $7 million that we still had. And we had spent a couple million dollars to date because, you know, the team was small. We were very lean. Um, but there's when you take money from whether it's friends or family or an institutional investor like a venture capital firm, you're taking on some responsibility to turn that money into a positive return for them. And if at any point along the way on that journey, you don't feel confident that you're going to be able to do that, I think it is, you have to be able to have the conversation with your investors and say, hey, we don't think that our original mission that we were on, that we thought we were going to achieve is viable. And that's where the conversation to give the money back was and and I think lucky for us, our investor was willing to say, "Hey, why don't you take another crack at it? Well, I'll give you three or four months to come up with something new, and if that doesn't work out, then we can have a, a, a conversation at that point in time." And, and look, that vote of confidence was was awesome. It did make you feel like, okay, we now have to come up with a, a great idea, and so. Uh, when we got the, we shrunk the team down and we had like a standing meeting every other day to come up with the next big idea. We would have that meeting for about 90 minutes, two hours, and then it was lunchtime because we were all exhausted, right? And that was a whole exercise of like, we get excited about an idea, two people would go off and go work on it. And then the next day you come back, they're like, oh, there's four other competitors, they're well-funded, Womp, 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 right. So it was a lot of one step forward, two steps back uh, along the way. And it was a summer of exploration and discovery. And one of the ideas that came up was this private network for your local community, your neighborhood. And we just 
it was one of a couple of ideas that we kept going out and talking to people and it just kept gaining steam. And, and at some point you say, okay, we've learned a lot here. Now we have to build a simple prototype to validate what we have learned through this discovery process. And that's when we knew we had something because it worked. It worked in one neighborhood. And then we're like, well, let's try it in another neighborhood. It wasn't until we got to about five neighborhoods that we're like, okay, we think we really have something here. And this is what we're going to build the company around. Uh, so, so it was a process. Money doesn't solve all those problems. Uh, sometimes it, it just gives you the runway to eventually figure it out. Yeah, it's, it's the oxygen. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm curious around, you said that you would have a, a stand up every second day and you'd spend a couple of hours just kind of discussing ideas and you'd, then someone would go, you'd have the team go and work on some things and then you'd kind mm -hmm. of switch again. I'd love to like delve a little deeper on that process because I think oftentimes as well, people like the idea and the, the idea of the lifestyle of being an entrepreneur, but they often say, I don't have a, a good enough idea yet. And I'd love to delve a little deeper on, there's some people that can come up with 101 ideas, but they don't have the confidence for it to, yeah, really, they're looking for signals. They're looking for something. So I'd love to delve a little deeper, like how did you generate those ideas and then how, what were those couple of steps? You said you went and spoke to people, you, you, and, but even before the prototype, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, it's a, it's a great question because um, some people, they just automatically think of ideas. And some people, it's a more of a process. It's more of a discussion. And what we tried to do was create an environment where people who had ideas in our group, there were six of us that were working on this together, that we created a forum where we could just get the ideas out for discussion. And then you, what you were looking for was not just the idea, but that other people would glom onto it and get excited about it. They'd be like, oh, well, what about this? And what about that? And so you would just have a discussion that was very organic. There was no hierarchy to the way that we were doing this. It, and sometimes there were some days where we had new ideas and there were some days where maybe we didn't. And we were just talking about the current ideas that we were working on. I think people would come in, some people were very analytical about the opportunities. Some were inspired by something that they had experienced in their own life. For some people, they had been just triggered because they had met with a friend and heard about some other idea that they were working on. So during that period of time, I think one thing that was true for almost all of our ideas was that they had these underpinnings around building on top of online communities because the group that we had assembled remember had worked on fan base and they had actually worked on the previous company, which had also been an online community. And so we had that shared focus and we were thinking about different parts of our lives where you could benefit from that type of, of uh, foundation. The other thing that I think is really important was that whenever, at the end of every meeting, any ideas that we had, we would say, okay, who wants to go work on one of these ideas? 
And what you're looking for is someone who had some interest, passion, motivation to go take one of those ideas and run with it. And then the second thing that we did is that we never sent anyone out on an idea solo. You always went in teams of two. And so then you had someone to kind of riff off of, someone to pair up on and, and go on that exploration together. Because again, it's about an idea is just an idea that needs to take shape and you need energy to make that happen. And so I think it's really important that you find these small SWAT teams. And I think two people's pretty good. Sometimes there were three, if there was an idea people were really excited about, but then we would come back two days later and that team would report out what they learned. And there was the factual information, but what you were also like, okay, kind of an unspoken part is, are you getting more excited about this idea or not? Because you can't fake passion for long. <laughs> it doesn't work. And I do think that you have to have an interest in what it is that you are building because you could be working on it for very long hours for five, 10 years. And so if you don't get some joy out of focusing on it, it's going to be really hard to be persistent and resilient during the ups and downs. And, and so it, that process came about very organically, but uh, I think it was essential to ideas getting off the ground. And then sometimes okay, something's getting ahead of steam, then other people are joining in to that effort. And that's what happened with Nextdoor. It started with like one person and two people, and then it became three, four of us that were working on it. And we're like, there's something here. And I think for most people, they get drawn to momentum, progress, and, and things that are working. And, and that's what happened over in a very organic way. And so in that regard, it kind of survived the process. It didn't die on the vine. And, and that to me, I think is one of the things about a startup that is you can't fake, right? Like there has to be a intrinsic motivation of the team. They have to be getting energy out of working on it to keep going. And at that point, the thing that you're spending your time on that you haven't killed off because of market negative feedback that's the thing you should go work on. Yeah, I see. This is really interesting. So how many ideas for how long did you work on this process before you found Nextdoor? Mm. We had, I mean, at one point in time, I think that there were nine ideas that were like on the board that people were working on that pretty quickly whittled down to about five. And we worked on them over the course of a summer. So call it 10 weeks. And by the end of the summer, there were really two that were emerging that had some potential. And then that's when we started to move out of customer discovery work, which, you know, as you know, from Steve Blank is like, go out and learn if this is something that people have a need for in their life. And we started to, and we had done very simple mock-ups and wireframes. Again, we hadn't written any code. And at that point we said, let's build a simple prototype we have enough feedback from the market to suggest that Nextdoor, uh, and we didn't even call it Nextdoor at the time. Uh, I think we were calling it, uh, I think it was Neighborly or something like that. Um, well, here's an idea that has some, has some uh, credibility, 
But the only way we're really going to learn is if we can launch it in a single neighborhood and see how neighbors interact with each other and how they they like it from there. And when it comes to kind of the parameters for the idea, one thing you said that was interesting was like you'd look at maybe one from a brainstorming session and then you'd go back and you'd be like, oh, look, there's a ton of competitors or they've already got heaps of traction. Like I'd love to know what were some of these parameters that you were looking for, like total addressable market, like total, like like yeah, like I'd love to know because that's important when it comes to trying to solve a big problem. Like that's a big thing in San Francisco, and that and that culture is is how do you you don't just go small, you don't just look for a small niche, right? You're looking for a big total addressable market. But what else was there? Uh, so total addressable market is important and part of, and just a word on that, you're going to work really hard on anything. You might as well work on something that has the potential to be big. Uh, and so I definitely encourage people to, especially if you want to take outside money from an investor to fuel that if you don't like you can keep it, you can keep it more of a lifestyle business, but otherwise you got to think about how big is is that market? Because you're going to put your heart and soul into it, whether it's a $10 million market or a $10 billion market. So might as well go stretch for the stretch for the stars. Um, but beyond that, I think a, and a key philosophy for, for us on the team was we wanted to find something that was a real pain point, that it wasn't you know, a vitamin versus the painkiller, right? You'd much rather be in the painkiller business. And and I think you know, that that terminology gets used a lot, but it was for us something that said, how are we going to, it's hard to get consumers to adopt a new product or a new app or a new service. And so it has to be something that they're feeling a gap in their life. And if they don't feel it, then you're gonna have a really hard time convincing them that they are missing out. And so what we wanted to find were real pain points that people had in their in their life and try and address them. When it came to competition, competition is one where you might say, oh, there's a lot of competitors, you should stay out of it. But it's also about the quality of the competition. Is this a recently funded new startup that has, you know, a great team or there's 10 teams that are in the space, like that's going to be a little bit harder to break out. But if it's a business that maybe has been around for a while that has been neglected, then that competition is one you say, maybe I'm willing to take that on. In the case of Nextdoor, there were people who were using things like Yahoo Groups and listservs and maybe the local newspaper, like the printed newspaper, that was the competition at the time. You're like, okay, I think we can do better than that. I think we can offer something that is demonstrably better than what they currently have. And uh, and so that, that competition was one that in some degrees helped validate the market for us, but didn't dissuade us from going into the market. Yeah, that makes sense. That's um, some really good advice because I think often if there are competitors, it can be intimidating, um, but that can often be good signs because that means that there is a market and it's not a crazy idea of something that nobody wants. It's it's one of many signals that you're looking for, right? 
That's right. But you have to be able to clearly articulate why you are a better option than that competitor. And if not, then go back to the drawing board. Yep. Okay. Um, so you started with five neighborhoods. What did that mean exactly? Because it ain't easy to build an online community um, and it ain't easy to build a social network. So like, yeah, um, I'd love to hear. Well, there was, I think, one of the biggest challenges when we first started thinking about the idea of next door was your head starts to explode when you think about, oh my goodness, we're going to have to build 200,000 of these small neighborhood networks across the country. And that's just in the US. And I think one of the important, and so you think about that and you start to say, that's daunting. That's, that's really hard. But I think part of the calculus that we did was saying, well, if we can figure out a way to make this valuable, don't you think there's what will be embedded in these communities and therefore it'll be worth the hard work to go do it, right? It's not, it will be hard, but if you do it, it'll be valuable and you will be embedded into these communities for years to come. And so one of the things that I think we, we got right was being willing to not be daunted by the large numbers, but instead to be really focused on how do we get the seeds of these communities correct? And so that first year, we actually, so if we started and we had five, by the end of the first year, we had 176 neighborhoods total <laughs> before we publicly launched. So, and most of those 176 neighborhoods, we were on the phone talk, talking to those users we had direct connections with them. And what we were doing was learning how to really build the process of getting a community off the ground and then figuring out how we could build that into the product so that we could do it at scale. So one of the things that I think is really important and valuable for people to think about is in the beginning, do not be afraid of doing unscalable things so you can get it right. Because the most important thing is to figure out what makes this, in this case, we were building community, what makes it work? What are the ingredients that make it work? Okay, you did it in one neighborhood. You did it in five neighborhoods. Can you do it in 15 neighborhoods? Can you do it in 25 neighborhoods? And once you start to see those patterns, then you can think about, and most of the time you're doing them in manual ways, unscalable ways, but with that, you're learning what is the essence of making it work. And then you can build that into a product at scale, a service at scale. I think, you know, you made this point. It's easy to look at something that's been successful and be like, oh, it was easy. But the reality is in the beginning, it's usually very granular, very tactile, very hands-on. And frankly, that is where I think a lot of innovation and insight comes out of that process. And it's something that at, at Unusual Ventures, when we are talking to, to founders and entrepreneurs, we encourage them, pick, pick part of the market and over-deliver for that segment of users. Build a product that people actually love and are delighted with. Because if you can find that, then you can think about expanding out the market from there. 
But the worst thing to do is create a mediocre product for a large number of people. Because early on, what you're looking for are true believers, the people who will be almost evangelical about telling their friends about your product. And the only way you can do that is to deliver an extraordinary product experience for a group of people who you understand really, 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 really well. And so I encourage people, even though you want to go for a large addressable market, you want to start with a experience that's really deep. I, look at Amazon. Where, where did Jeff Bezos start? He started with books, right? And then he moves into music and DVDs. But it was the quality of those experiences early on that gave him permission to, for Amazon to be able to build out the other categories. If he had not done a great job in those first categories, you don't have the brand, you don't have the trust of, of your customers to be able to expand beyond that. And I think every entrepreneur can learn from that, is deliver an extraordinary product experience, extraordinary service experience for a narrow band of users, and then expand out from there. And I think that the, the benefit of doing something hyper-local like Nextdoor is that you could do that in a handful of neighborhoods to begin with and each time get a little bit better at building the experience that then could scale up and be used around the globe. Yeah, I see. Um, that's really great advice, Sarah. Uh, I'm curious, though, how did you fuel the network effects of, um, because that is the key element to online community, social networks, fueling that network effect so it's built within the product so it naturally grows. What did you do there? Um, how did you fuel that? Uh, it, that's a great question. And I think the core of any community is trying to get the, the one or two people in the beginning of any community who are going to be your real champions. And so at Nextdoor, we had this concept of a founding member in each neighborhood. And that person was the individual who brought Nextdoor to their community. And we would ask them, what's the name of the community? Why do you want to bring the community to your, why do you want to bring Nextdoor to your community? What is the boundaries of the neighborhood? We put them through all these hurdles to kind of prove like, are you the right person to do this in your neighborhood? And then then we told them they had 21 days to go invite nine other people to join their neighborhood. And so only the neighborhoods that could get over that hurdle would be allowed to continue. Otherwise, we would give someone else the opportunity to do it. And so if you just think about what that was doing, what that was doing was identifying a local champion within the neighborhood who could, whose objective was to recruit other people in the neighborhood to join. And then everyone who joined the neighborhood was asked to invite a few neighbors themselves. And so this was a way in which you built grassroots community at scale. And it was essential. And I think any community that you're building, whether you're building your founder community or someone's creating a community of people who like to play pickleball, you've got to start with one person who's like the champion, who's like, come on guys, let's get together and let's do this. And I don't care if that community ends up eventually being 10 million people. It starts off with one or two people who 
plant the seeds and create uh, the community from the ground up. Yeah, that's really interesting. Love to delve a little more deeper on that um, because I think more than ever, community is becoming more and more important even for direct-to-consumer brands or you know SaaS companies or B2B companies like um people are using people are using and i see you know uh this trend where people are using products like discord or you know even facebook groups to kind of build their community of of customers advocates and then pick out evangelists um what 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 advice would you give to anyone that is looking to use community building as a tool for growth or a competitive advantage? Nathan, it's a it's a great insight, and it's something that for for me who has worked now on community building platforms for almost twenty years, I'm delighted to see more people kind of tune into this. And the biggest thing that I encourage people to focus on is authenticity. Uh, the thing about a community is that you you can't cheat it. You can't fake it. Uh, it has to be authentic. And, and that's why I often tell people, if you think community is a important part of your strategy, it should be a part of what you're doing from the very beginning. It's not the type of thing you can just bolt on later on. If, if you do, it will not feel authentic. And so... If you want to create a community around your product, then you should have the founding team, the founder, the CEO as like member number one of that community and sharing with people what, what is the mission, why is this important, what are the goals, and really create them as almost co-collaborators in building the product. So it shouldn't just be like, oh, can you just promote my product on your social network, like, I want you to be a part of this, this product process. Tell us what we could do better. How can we improve the product? And then you got to act on it and listen to it. Because if not, then again, the community won't have the authenticity that, uh, that you're trying to, I think, infuse into not just your community, but also your company your your product as a whole and and that's something that I think if you go back to those early days with with next door those first 176 neighborhoods those early founding members gave us incredible feedback that dramatically shaped the product early on uh, and if we did not have that back and forth conversation and relationship with them we would not have built a high quality product for launch and so it was it was really an essential, essential part of it. But the biggest mistake that I see people do is that they're like, oh, we're going to build the product. And then later on, we're going to uh, we're going to bolt on community afterwards. And and I think that that rarely works. It has to be part of the DNA of the company for it to be something that uh, rings true with with your community. Yeah, no, that's really good advice. Um and makes sense. Uh, I was thinking back on just experiences that we have um, because, you know, at Founder, we're trying to build a, 
a company that uh, democratizes entrepreneurial education uh, with free content on the media property side, but also premium content on the online educational courses side. And I think about certain communities for certain courses and ones that have really taken off have been kind of myself or some of the early team kind of rustling that up and, and driving it versus um, you know some other products as we've tried to scale out and we've bolted a community on it hasn't worked as well so no that really makes sense because um, I think the reason I asked this question as well is I think I think community is quite a hot thing right now and it can be um, it can be very 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 powerful like if you look at it from another lens um, you know, you look at kind of personal brands and these influences like a, a David Dobrik or a Kylie Jenner, the the influence that they command and the loyalty that they command with their followers, i.e. on an online community of sorts, is incredible. Like that that is just so extremely powerful. Yeah. Well and, and and to me, I think there's a there's a macro trend that's happening in the world where we are increasingly less trusting of large institutions. And instead, we rely much more on a far more democratic grassroots type of word of mouth recommendations. And that's where authenticity has to be there because you, you can't you can't convince people to be advocates for your product, your brand, if they don't actually feel that way. Right. And and by the way, what, what I think is so interesting is this is true, as you noted, on the consumer side, but it's also going into the SaaS products and enterprise, even in infrastructure. We, we see this at 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 unusual ventures. We have a whole effort around enterprise and and infrastructure and a big part of every single one of those those products is about having a community of folks who understand your product that can speak to one another and speak to other CIOs or other decision makers about why the product works. And in fact, you you also have these, you know, grassroots open source communities. Like that's a lot of what's happening in open source community is hey, what's the best thing that I can do to fix this problem in my company? And people feel very comfortable going out to an open source community and getting the answer to that, the kind of the wisdom of the crowds at scale. And so I think, I think almost every new product, new service, new brand, if you're not thinking about your community strategy from, from the very beginning, you're you're potentially putting yourself into a corner because it's going to be hard down the road to add that in in a way that will feel authentic to the group that you're trying to to win over as your advocates and your your influencers in whatever market you're participating. Mm, yeah, I agree, hundred ten percent. I could talk about this all day. So, um, really enjoying. Well, this. it's it's yeah. what you're doing. It's what you're doing, right? You're building community and. So much of this community that you've built is a reflection of you and the early people that you brought on. And, and the trust that people have in this brand is a reflection of people's trust in you. And, um, and I think that that is true with virtually every community out there. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. Look, um, we have to work towards wrapping up, Sarah. I'm mindful of your time. Uh, but yeah, this is a great conversation. Uh, I'd love it's to just talk. Thank you. 
Yeah, no, it's been great. So I'd love to just talk about kind of a little bit more around Nextdoor and also unusual around um, kind of what happened next. So you built that company up. Um, like, can we talk around kind of, you know, because, yeah, you said it was one of the largest private social networks or the largest, world's largest private social network of neighborhoods. Can you kind of give us an idea of scale and then what happened next and why you decided to move to Unusual and, and how all that came about? Sure. Uh, so with Nextdoor, you know, we are growing. We get to almost every neighborhood in the United States. I spent a lot of time launching next door in international markets, including Australia, including most of Western Europe. And then um, the team launched in, in Canada. And we were just at a point where I think looking at, okay, we've built this platform, it's going really well. Um, and the next question for me personally was, did I wanna sign up for the next three to four years for the next phase of the company? And I think that like that's a very personal decision that that each of us has to make. And if you're ever at a point where you feel like, hey, it might be the right time to get off the merry-go-round and allow for the next phase of growth, whether that's around more expansion as well as expansion on the revenue side, it just felt like it was a good time for me to to step away and and I actually moved to the board at that time and and take a little bit of time to think about the next stages for me. And what I got excited about was at that point, next door is almost 400 people, right? It's a much larger organization. And I was excited about sitting down with entrepreneurs in the early stages of their creation process and helping them think about how to find product market fit, avoid some of these pitfalls that we had with fan base. And that's what was getting me excited. And so I got turned on to the team at Unusual because they are the types of investors who want to roll up their sleeves and help entrepreneurs in those early stages. And, and hopefully I can take some of the experiences that I had with Nextdoor and even with Fanbase and use them as a way to help other entrepreneurs see around the corners and, and avoid some of those pitfalls that we had, at least on the fan base side of things. And so it's been a great it's been a great uh, match and uh, a great experience. And I think it's it's just fun to see the creation of, of new companies and entrepreneurs going through that journey. And if I can be helpful in that process, uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, no, that's that makes sense. And look, it's um it's a very exciting time right now. There's a lot of exciting, interesting companies being created and a lot of innovation happening during everything that's going on in the world right now. Um, so just to round out like the next door kind of story, like what did the revenue model look like? And like, can you give us some numbers around, like, can you share kind of like users or like revenue or like, yeah, anything there? Yeah. So, so the revenue you can think about as being, um, we have the ability for local businesses, large businesses to be able to advertise uh, in in the feed. And so that has been uh, very successful for us. We're still a privately held company, so we don't talk about uh, revenue. But in terms of, of users, uh, so first of all, we'll take neighborhoods over 250, I think it's 260,000 neighborhoods around the globe tens of millions of users around the globe. Uh, and as you can imagine, in a world where there's a 
uh, a global pandemic, there's been a lot of growth this year because people want to know what's happening in their hyper-local community, in their neighborhoods. Um, and so uh, it's been a, it's been very gratifying for me to see the platform that I worked on for you know almost a decade here uh, being utilized and being valuable at a time of such critical need. And, uh, and so we continue to see that growth and uh, delighted that it's been uh, a reliable resource for people for uh, during these really challenging times. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Thank you for sharing just because it helps round out that journey. And then, yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit about uh, unusual ventures more around kind of um, you guys are quite hands on with founders um, and you really kind of, uh, you know, get in the weeds. Uh, so I'm curious, uh, you know, what, what are kind of the, some of the interesting things that are being pitched to you right now and what does a good pitch look like? Well, I, I think the key thing is that we try and be helpful with entrepreneurs where they need the help. Um, and And I think people are drawn to us because, we have, uh, especially on the on the side that I work on most closely, on the consumer side, Andy Johns and I are both people who have worked at building companies, uh, me in founding companies, Andy Johns in growing and scaling companies. So we have a lot of experience of what it's like to be in the trenches. And so we can help entrepreneurs, especially in those early stages of trying to find product market fit, thinking about positioning, thinking about how to create the viral growth loops and how to do that in, in the product and in organic ways. Those are things that we can help entrepreneurs through the journey and as well as connect them to other folks that we have worked with where they need expertise. Um, so that's something that's been super interesting. Over the course of the last year, obviously a couple of things that have happened. FinTech has really like exploded once again. Uh, Andy Johns, my my partner, um, uh, was the head of product and then the head of uh, then the president of Wealthfront, and so he has been, you know, in the trenches of building that. And so almost, you know, every fintech company that you can think of out there has come through and and come to talk to him. I've had a lot of experience with online communities and with so social media. And so uh, anything to do with local, which again, we're seeing a resurgence in local and people coming to us and asking us about that. And then we've also gone pretty deep on video, which that is something we've been thinking about for a while. And obviously with people working from home, uh, the role of video in the workplace and in our lives are is, is really important. And if you combine that with these network effects uh, we have some, I think we have some unique insight into those areas where we can be helpful to folks as they get off the ground. And so it's, even though COVID has pulled us all from working at, from being together in the office and working home, it has not slowed down the rate at which people are starting new companies, that they're looking to accelerate their growth. And so it's, it's been a very busy, busy time. Yeah, no, it's actually, from my experience, it's actually accelerated things in many ways. Um, more than ever, like I was reading some statistics, I can't remember where, but like more than ever, like the, the amount of LLCs that have been registered um, in the United States, uh, it's like tripled or, or something insane, yeah. Well, well, I think disruption happens. When disruption happens, I think entrepreneurs see that there's an opportunity for something new to be created. 
And, uh, and I think we're seeing that confluence. Plus, you have a situation where there are a lot more people who have the skills that are needed to get a company started today. It's easier than ever to get them started. Uh, there's capital that's out there for the right ideas. And so that combination combined with you know, a pretty radical change in how we are all working and living right now is creating these new windows of opportunities for new companies to be formed. So in that regard, I think it's it's a great time to be an entrepreneur. Yeah, I agree, 110%. So look, we have to work towards wrapping up, Sarah. Uh, like I said, really enjoyed our conversation. Um, last question, uh, two last questions. One, any kind of final words of wisdom that you'd like to share on, you know, from everything you've learned on your journey? And then secondly, where's the best place people can find out more about yourself, your work, Unusual Ventures? Sure. Um, so the, the biggest thing I think to think about um, as you're going on these entrepreneurial journeys is thinking about who you are working with. And I think that starts with your co-founders and the team that you build. Um, these are intense journeys that uh, often go on for five, 10 years. And you want to pick people who are complementary to your skill set, but also people who you're going to enjoy working with through the ups and downs. Um, and I think the same applies when you are looking for investors, especially the early stage investors. You know, money is kind of a commodity. Who is it that's going to bring something to the table that's going to be additive to the team, whether that's specific domain expertise, it's stage of company expertise, but think about, and who do you want to be working with through the ups and downs? Because your investors are part of that team. And, and so think, think very wisely about that. And uh, I think one of the things that we were smart about with Nextdoor is that we didn't always optimize for price and valuation. We were much more looking for who could be a great partner for us at this stage of the company. Uh, and then in terms of where people can find me, I can be found really easily on Sarah, S-A-R-A-H, at unusual.vc. You can go check out our website, unusual.vc. You can go check me out on Twitter. I'm at Sarah Leary. Uh, or you can find us on Twitter, uh, unusualvc uh, as well. So give it a try. We'd love to hear from entrepreneurs out there that are working on something exciting and big and looking for someone to be a real partner to them in that journey. Amazing. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, Sarah. I really appreciate it. It was a great call. Uh, it's been an honor to be here. Thank you so much, Nathan, and keep up the great work with your community. Thank you. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.